By the way, when, uh, when Andrea was uh, giving us a Greek lesson, it took me back to my nightmarish days in seminary. It was, uh, it was Greek back to me then, too. It, uh, today, as we continue in the, the book of John, the Gospel of John, I'm going to read from John 15, verses 26 and 27, and then John chapter 16, verses 12 through 15. When the Advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who, comes, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And then verse 12 of the next chapter. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Forty-six years ago, I became a Christian. I was shocked that I became a Christian. I went out to get stoned with a friend and came back a brother and servant of Jesus Christ. A month later, I was shocked again. I went to a youth convention in Raleigh, North Carolina to learn, since I was a young Christian, and to enjoy myself. Instead, I heard an audible voice calling me to preach. This did not please me. Soon after that, I was standing in front of a small church in Dublin, Virginia, at the close of a Wednesday night service, with probably eight or ten people at the front, and we were praying. We were about to be dismissed. And suddenly, someone picked me up and threw me six or eight feet. I felt an arm go around my chest, and I was tossed like I was a feather. I landed on my back, and my first thought was, I'm going to kill whoever did this. I was angry. But when I tried to get up, I couldn't. There was a strange electricity running through my body. So I just laid there because I couldn't do anything else about it. I prayed some, I listened, but I heard no message. I knew it was from the Lord by then, but I didn't have a clue what he was up to. Eventually, I got up and asked the people near me, who was the jerk that tossed me to the floor? I was ready to rumble. And all of them responded, no one threw you to the floor. One person lightly touched you with one finger on, the forehead, on your forehead, and you went flying. To this day, I am still confused about exactly what all that meant. I've never told this story in a sermon before. I've been preaching for 45 years. This is the first time I've ever said this from the pulpit. Very few people know this story. I did it because I didn't want to scare people who would think I was some sort of charismaniac, or I didn't want people to think I was crazy, although I realized that ship sailed a long time ago. <laughs> and through the years, I've seen all kinds of people slain in the spirit, and I know most of what I've seen was the power of suggestion or emotional manipulation, and I didn't want people to think I was gullible like that. And so I'm, here to, I'm telling you this story today because, first of all, it only happened, that's the only time it's ever happened to me. 
And um, I've still thought for 46 years what happened there. And I think maybe I got a little too complex. I think God's lesson was simple. I think God wanted to show me who was in charge and that his spirit and power were real. Now, I never ran into this in the Presbyterian church that I attended the first 19 years of my life. If I had, I'm sure someone would have called 911 and I've been given a thorough physical and psychological workup. But fortunately, I was in a Pentecostal church and they just assumed, you know, oh, he's there, God must be doing something. But I've thought about that and what it meant. And I realized all these years later that I ran into a power I had never known before, a power that was unpredictable and uncontainable, a power that shook me to my core, a power that did not fit nicely into my theology or liturgy or church experience, what I discovered is the Holy Spirit can be quite real. And he can and does show up in all kinds of places, in all kinds of ways. Just ask Moses or the people on the day of Pentecost or John on the Isle of Patmos when God showed him heaven and the, Revel the book of Revelation. As he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. None of these people expected what was coming. No one but the Spirit himself was in control of these events. When the Spirit comes in power, we must be open to an agenda not of our own making. When the Spirit comes in power, we're not in control of our lives of our, or of our churches anymore. And that is precisely what scares us. Jesus wants us to live supernatural lives. He wants us to live in the Spirit. He wants us to have lives that cannot be explained any other way except that Jesus Christ is alive and his spirit is moving. Christ means, as Paul wrote, that, to live, you know, that he wants to live his life through us. To, it is therefore no longer I live, but Christ who lives through me. And there is a direct correlation between being spirit-filled and being crucified with Christ. In today's text, John tells us about how the Trinity works for our salvation. Jesus spoke again and again about he, how he and the Father were one, one essence, one purpose, one will. And the way that played out in Jesus' mission to save us was that Jesus was obedient to the Father no matter what. And that Jesus surrendered his will to the Father. He said only what the Father told him to say. He did only what the Father led him to do. Jesus was fully submitted to the Father's will, which led to tremendous spiritual power being unleashed through Jesus into the world. And in the same way, Jesus, that Jesus submitted to the Father, now the Spirit is submitted to the Son, even to this day. That's what it says in verse 14. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive his marching orders, so to speak. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I told you the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The Spirit is submitted to the Son, just as the Son was submitted to the Father. The Spirit, and, and to, to complete the cycle, 
We are to submit to the Spirit as he leads us. That's what it says earlier. When Jesus says in chapter 15, 26, when the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he must testify about me and you must also testify for you have been with me from the beginning. We are to join with the Spirit as the Son leads the Spirit. And spiritual power comes from this. And the key to it all is surrender. But we must let the Spirit be in control for that to happen. We must be surrendered to the Spirit's agenda. We must be crucified with Christ is another way to put it. Which is precisely why a lot of people don't want the Holy Spirit to show up in power. Often the most resistant people to the Spirit moving are Christians. Oddly enough, I think one of the reasons we don't see the Spirit operating in churches often is the way we lead people to Christ. Ironically, often what stops Christians from walking in the Spirit is the way we uh, lead Christians to Christ in the first place. Salvation is presented as just focusing on forgiveness and justification by faith alone. Now, forgiveness and justification by faith alone are critical doctrines of the Bible. But forgiveness and justification by faith alone are just part of the gospel, not the whole thing. Conversion is just the start of the journey. Forgiveness is just the start of the journey. Conversion is just the start of the journey. Often the way salvation is presented is like, we say it like this, if you say the right stuff and believe it, you've punched your ticket to heaven. Now all you need to do after that is to drop in on church every now and then, pray some to make sure the ticket the ticket is still good, and, and, and uh, turn in the ticket when you die. Plus, as an added bonus, you get 911 services. If you really, really get in over your head, you can call on God. But what happens between conversion and death is quite secondary the way people are taught. There's no understanding or expectation of of change or how we live our lives. There's no expectation about growth and spiritual intimacy with God or the power of God operating through us in the spirit. And since those things aren't expected, and since transformed lives are not expected, spirit walking is not expected, why do you need the, the, the spirit of God? Why would anyone need the Holy Spirit if salvation we are, at, at salvation we are not taught anything else? Why do you need the Holy Spirit if a life of experience and growth and intimacy with God is seen as optional for only a sacred few? That is simply an inadequate definition of salvation. God has more for us than just forgiving us. Praise God he forgives us, but he's got more than that. He has more for us than just reserving a place for us in heaven. Thank God for that, but he has more. You see... We need someone bigger and smarter than us running our lives and running our churches. But let's be honest, that's a little scary because we've heard stories. I just told you a story. Did that scare you? It scared me and made me mad. But let's be honest. In this nation, the number one addiction I have come to believe is control. It is the ultimate addiction of our culture. 
And to ultimately let God be real and run the show makes all of us very, very nervous. But if you want to see the power of the Spirit, we must be surrendered to the Spirit. We must give up ultimate control to the Spirit. Or as Paul said, we must be crucified. One of uh, the best examples I've ever read of this was from Chuck Swindoll. And Chuck Swindoll wrote that a number of years after he became a Christian, he said, I just messed around with, being, with spiritual things. Just messed around. I ran around with church folks. I learned the God talk. I sang the hymns. I even memorized verses. I prayed pretty good prayers, and I carried my Bible to church Sunday after Sunday. I sang in the choir, and I added to my schedule a Bible class or two every now and then. But he said, here was the problem. My life was my life. I did not let that religious stuff interfere with things like my career or my home or my strong will or my pursuit of things or my determination to get my own way and, or my own personal agendas. I wasn't a wife beater or a criminal or an alcoholic or some awful notorious sinner. No, I was just a self-centered, selfish person. Intent on my own way. He said, I knew how to get what I wanted and nothing was going to stand in my way. Stubborn and opinionated, I ro rolled up my sleeves and was ready to slug it out with whoever stood in my way, including God. Please notice this. Swindoll was a Christian, but he was not a surrendered Christian. He had not accepted his crucifixion of his own ego. Swindoll's confession sheds some light on true surrender. He clearly stated that at that time in his life, he had no known major sins to repent of. He was religious. He believed the right stuff. Surrender, though, means even more than that. It means we surrender the things we deeply love, things we can't readily identify as being in conflict with God's will, things like career and possessions and personal plans. Surrender is not only an issue of right or wrong, but whether we're going to live our lives really fully for Jesus with the right priorities and the right values. Surrender comes down to who do I really live for? What do I really live for? Surrender is not simply getting rid of sin. It is giving God what he wants, and what he wants is us, all of us. Oswald Chambers said, total surrender is when you give up the right to yourself. As you think through the major decisions you've recently made in the last year, did you check with the Spirit on any of that? Was there any room for the Holy Spirit to give guidance and leading? Could the Holy Spirit say anything about personal plans and desires? Did God get the final say of anything? Is there room in our life for the Holy Spirit to do something or teach us something? That's the real question we need someone bigger and smarter than us running our lives and our churches but if we want to see the power of God there is no shortcut to it it is thy will be done this is what the spirit is after you all of you nothing less surrender means I'm available 24 7 I am open to him and his thoughts and his nudges all the time. 
Because those nudges can come at any place at any time, at night in bed or on a job or in a conversation or in silence. Jesus made it clear to his first disciples that their task was not doing ministry for him, but being available to him. Like Samuel, our attitude has to be, speak, for your servant is listening. The second aspect of surrender is a willingness to do what the Spirit tells you to do. Why should God give us leading and guidance and power if we're going to do nothing with it? The Spirit can be grieved or even quenched by our unwillingness to obey. If you want spiritual power, then you must be willing to do what the Spirit wants. And that means surrender. Because if you want his power, you must give up yours. If you want the strength of the Spirit, you must declare your own weakness. We have to die to our controlaholism so the Spirit can take over and take us to a whole new level. Because ultimately, surrender means freedom. I uh, was... um, reading the story of Father Scanlon. Father Scanlon was a Catholic priest who years ago was flying from Chicago to Steubenville in a small cub airplane with a friend. And as they approached the airport, they entered a dark cloud thinking it was smoke. In reality, it was an extremely violent hailstorm. Father Scanlon knew that he was going to die and it was going to come quick. He prayed. Lord Jesus, I've done many things I wish I hadn't done. And I haven't done many things I wish I had. I'm sorry. And as the hell battered, the plane and the wind roared, and the plane spun down towards the ground at alarming speed, Father Scanlon added one more prayer. He said, Lord, I give it all to you. And I trust in your merciful love. And he said at that instant, he experienced an extraordinary visitation of the Spirit. He said, I was enveloped in God's love. It filled every fiber of my heart. Peace welled up within me. Scanlon said that the mind can play tricks on you in desperate situations, but this was not a trick. The Lord God Almighty was there, there in that ridiculously small plane which was about to crash in this field somewhere west of Steubenville, Ohio. And the most amazing thing of all happened, Father Scanlon said. He said, I was completely indifferent to death. That is freedom. You can't get more free than that. Your plane is hurtling towards the ground and you are free in Jesus Christ no matter what happens. And he said that was uh, more real to me than the rattle of the hail or the scream of the engines as we continued to fall. Totally surrendered. And in that instant, totally aware of God. What is the hallmark of spiritfulness? The knowledge that God Almighty is inside you, that Jesus Christ lives. What is being spirit-filled? It is being enveloped in God's love. It is caring more about what love his love is than life or death or jobs or possessions that is the ultimate freedom when the spirit is in control nothing binds you jesus has my life in his hands 
to live is Christ, to die is gain. What can really hurt me? Not life or death, falling planes, demons, anything in the world, Paul says. This is the freedom of surrender. Because when you are a slave to Christ, you become a slave to nothing else. You are free. The other part of freedom is this. And the spirit-filled life is this. We have to realize that whatever is going to happen for the kingdom will not be because of our abilities. We have to declare our weakness. We have to wave the white flag on that. Ben Patterson is, is gone to be with the Lord. He was a great Presbyterian pastor. He was the editor of the Wittenberg Door. Anybody that read the Wittenberg Door, you know what I'm talking about. And he wrote a great book on prayer. And he, but he was a pastor out in California. And he was a pastor for the first seven years. And then he said this, it took nearly seven years for me to lose confidence in myself. I love that line. It took seven years for me to lose confidence in myself. It came by way of two ruptured discs in the lumbar region of my back. The doctor prescribed six weeks of total rest just to determine whether surgery could be needed. My first thought was, okay, I guess I'll get a lot of reading done. But he said, but due to the pain, the painkillers and the muscle relaxants and lying on my back, my eyes couldn't focus. He said, I, I barely got through one small book in six weeks. And I couldn't lie in bed either. It was too soft. So the six weeks were spent on the floor in my bedroom. The pain was horrible and humiliating. A trip to the bathroom was a race between my bladder and my capacity for pain. He said, sometimes when I went to use the bathroom, I had to lie down on the bathroom floor to recover from the trip before I could do what the trip was for. He said, I was of no use to the church, or so I thought. I couldn't preach. I couldn't lead meetings. I couldn't make calls. He said, I couldn't do anything but pray. So I asked my wife to bring me the new church directory with the pictures of all the church members in it. And he said, I decided I would pray for every member every day I was on the floor. It took nearly two hours a day for me to do this. He said, don't misunderstand, this wasn't great piety on my part. He said, mainly I was bored and frustrated. But very quickly, these times of prayer became sweet. And he said, toward the end of my convalescence, I had taken a walk and was back on the floor resting and thinking about going to work. And he said, I said to the Lord, you know, Lord, these times of prayer have been sweet. It's too bad I don't have time to do this when I'm at work. And then the Lord spoke. He addressed me. His first word was stupid. <laughs> that was his word. He said it in a pleasant tone of voice, though. Has God ever called you stupid? He's never called me stupid, but he's called me idiot a number of times. And he said, stupid, you have the same 24 hours each day when you're sick as when, as when you're well. The trouble with you, Ben, is when you're well, you think you are in charge. When you're sick, you know you're not. Isn't it amazing how life often has to knock us on the floor before we get that message through to us? Patterson goes on to say, we don't build the kingdom. Jesus Christ does. 
It isn't an acquisition. It's a gift. And he said, I was coming to the conviction that if I can build a church in my own power, it isn't worth building. He said, I'm in my mid-50s as I write, and I only want to do the things now in my life I can't do unless God does it. I want there to be an abundance of what Bob Pierce called God room in all my endeavors. For Pierce, God room is the gap between what we can do by ourselves and what can only happen if God steps in. Yes, that's it. That's what I want. How much God room, spirit room is built into our lives. Do we even expect God to move anymore? Do we even expect the spirit to guide us anymore? Do we even pay attention to him? Because you see, God is going to build his kingdom through us. He said, I bore witness to the Father. You're going to bear witness to me because of the Holy Spirit. Sooner or later, we have got to learn that people are God's method, not techniques and not programs. And people become usable to God only when we pay attention and are surrendered and open to what he wants. Only when we say, yes, Lord. That's the only time we're useful. That's the old cliche, isn't it? God doesn't want our ability. He wants our availability. Jesus wants to sing his song to the world through us. He wants to play music so the world can hear. But we can only play chopsticks, brothers and sisters. The Spirit wants to play Mozart. We can only play a handful of keys. The Spirit can play the entire keyboard. We want to show what we can do. The Spirit wants to show us what the Master can do when he plays the song through us. We are dealing with a power we can't begin to comprehend. A power that has been sent to save the world. A presence since sent to pour the very love of God into us and never leave us the same, a power and a person who was meant to transform the very core of us. But here's the point. He comes on his own terms, not ours. And his terms are total surrender. His terms are when we declare our weakness to do anything for the kingdom of God in our power. He wants your life, not just a small compartment of it, your life, not just, it cannot just be this religious thing that you do every now and then to quiet your conscience and lessen your fear. He wants all of you, nothing less. Christ was crucified. He asks us to join him on the cross so his life can flow through ours. Jesus isn't after good, smart, well-planned lives. He's after crucified, surrendered lives. Let me ask you a question. What scares you about God and the Holy Spirit? What is so hard for you to give up, to surrender? What is it that you hold back? Well, what is it where you're struggling and he never really gets to touch it? Where in your life is there God room?
a place for the Spirit to move, a place where the Spirit is sought. Do you even expect the Spirit to move in your life anymore? I pray you do. I pray we do. Because, you know, I've been in ministry for 45 years now. And the one thing I can testify is that anything that I did of any consequence for the kingdom of God, it was a total surprise for me. I didn't see it coming. I didn't see this church coming. I didn't, ever, you know, I didn't see God calling me to be an urban pastor at a multicultural, multiracial church. That wasn't my dream. I didn't dream that in a zillion years and never would. But it was God's dream. This church has been spirit-led to get where it is. He has brought us so far. But we have to remember, he's just getting started. He has bigger plans. He has power he wants to shed among us. I believe the Lord wants to see more people saved than we're seeing saved right now. I really believe that. I believe the Lord wants us to be the city on the hill that draws people, but it only comes if we surrender our agenda for his agenda. It only comes when we say what Jesus said in that garden 2,000 years ago, struggling, wanting to save himself, but in the end surrendering and saying, not my will, but your will be done. If we do, if we meet God on his terms, by definition, it cannot help but unleash tremendous spiritual power. That's the way it works. And if we only want God to be a genie in a bottle, or somebody finds us parking places, or grants our wishes, we will not see spiritual power because the Holy Spirit hasn't been given to meet our insignificant agendas. He has been given to transform the world through us. Amen? I'd like... Andrea, to come forward. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I just want you to ask that question, that one question. Is everything on the altar? Does Jesus have it all? Am I open to whatever the Spirit wants to do in my heart and life? Am I open to what the Spirit wants to do in this church? Are we really open to it and seeking Him? What? And if we're not, what's stopping us? Are we scared? Pray that. Is there an addiction we love more than Him right now? Pray that. Are we just scared of not being in control? Pray that. Start where you are and invite Jesus Christ through his spirit to set us free.
Lord Jesus Christ, you have offered us life in the Spirit. You have offered us incredible spiritual power. Forgive us, Lord, for so easily being distracted. Forgive us for just messing around in the shallows. Forgive us, Lord, for just making life with you just another spoke on the wheel with a lot of other spokes. Create in us a hunger and a thirst for more, Lord Jesus. Forgive us for our lives being grasped tightly by ourselves instead of opening up our lives wide open to you. Overcome our fear. Overcome our controlaholism. Overcome, Lord, our sin nature. Pour your life into us so we can pour your life into our families and our neighbors, Lord, into, into the lives of people who desperately need you and, and into the lives of the, of the poor and, Lord, of people struggling in every kind of way, Lord. Help us. Take us places that surprise us. Be real to us in startling ways. And forgive us for the thousands of times we have ignored your nudges, ignored your thoughts, ignored your presence, and went about our way through the day. Forgive us and heal us and fill us. Holy Spirit, fill us. In your name, Jesus, fill us. Help us to live the supernatural life you want to give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll sing this final hymn and the altar is open. Sing, uh, fill us up.